Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade? They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if a block sink is not helping with Wednesday's hump day, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. TNCs apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details. Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Kagan. In tonight's show, the surrender of Japan at the end of the Second World War, the poet Walt Whitman and the years he spent at Washington, D.C., crime and punishment in 19th century Belfast, Anna Parnell's account of the Ladies' Land League and her critique of the politics of her brother, Charles Stuart Parnell. And then to end the show, we'll hear about the Dáil Loan and the ambitious plans to crowdfund the Irish Revolution. Last week, we looked back on one of my favourite shows on the life and music of Beethoven. And two weeks ago, we discussed the father of Russian literature, Alexander Pushkin. And if you want to listen to either of these or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with Unconditional, the Japanese surrender in World War II. Signed on the 2nd of September 1945 aboard the American battleship USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay by Japanese and Allied leaders, the instrument of surrender formally ended the war in the Pacific and brought to a close one of the most cataclysmic engagements in history, one that had cost the lives of millions. And a new book offers a narrative of the surrender in its historical moment, revealing how and why the event unfolded as it did and the principal figures behind it. The book is called Unconditional, The Japanese Surrender in World War II. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press and costs about €25. The author is Mark Galicchio. And Mark, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Oh, well, thank you very much, Patrick. Can we begin with the idea of an unconditional surrender? Because this was something that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt had wanted. He was now dead and President Truman had taken over. They had done the same for Nazi Germany. Why was it so important for the United States that the surrender was unconditional? As is always the case with Franklin Roosevelt, there were several reasons for him uh, to do something. And and one was... Um, to assure the Soviet Union that the United States would not be making a separate peace um, with the Germans. But it it was also to placate um, public opinion at home, which had been um, outraged when the Americans uh, made compromise with the Vichy French government uh, during the landings in North Africa in late 1942. Um, but it was also, and this was, I think, the most important um, reason for Roosevelt endorsing unconditional surrender. Uh, it was the fir- intended to be the first step in a program uh, designed to eliminate the causes of aggression in, in the Axis powers. That is to say, unconditional surrender would give the Americans uh, the opportunity to um, basically reconstruct uh, the governments and societies of um, 
defeated Axis powers. And, and so that was the intention, but as with everything associated with Franklin Roosevelt, it, it was also uh, destined to be politically controversial. Uh, and that controversy kind of broke out uh, into the public uh, realm uh, after Germany surrendered. And um, a number of uh, Americans began asking if it was really necessary at that point to demand Japan's unconditional surrender. They argued that it might be possible to get Japan to surrender without having to pay the heavy costs of invading Japan's home islands, if only the Americans would make some sort of concession to the Japanese. And tying into this was uh, different opinions about uh, the culpability of Emperor Hirohito, and President Truman took a, a strong line on that. that that's correct. He, um, those people who argued for, they, they called it clarification of unconditional surrender, but they really meant modification. Um, and the, the principal modification would be uh, to allow Emperor Hirohito to stay on the throne. Uh, the people who supported that approach were primarily uh, Republicans um, uh, in and out of office uh, at the time. They were led by former President Herbert Hoover, but there were also members who were um, identified with the Republican Party within uh, Roosevelt's cabinet. Uh, he had sort of created a, a kind of coalition government uh, to manage the war, and, and one of them was the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, who had considerable experience in the Far East, um, and another was the former ambassador to Japan, Joseph Grew, and they argued that the Americans should allow the Japanese to keep the emperor because the emperor was merely a figurehead, and they and they referred to, interestingly, uh, they referred to Japanese history um, and the Meiji Restoration in the mid-19th century and to make the argument that Japan had, um, you know, been a modernizing country, that it was uh, admirable in many respects in the way it had kind of become one of the great powers, and that, that really uh, grew, made the argument that um, the current constitution, which had um, kind of restored the emperor to this symbolic position, um, actually had made Japan a more peaceful country, was his argument. Um, and and uh, so there was this argument about the trajectory of Japanese history over the last 80 years or so that um, came into play during this debate. But a, another important factor in the argument that people like Herbert Hoover and Henry Simpson and Joseph Grew made was that um, by prolonging the war, you know, insisting on unconditional surrender, um, the Americans were going to make it possible for the Russians to enter the war against Japan and sweep across Northeast Asia. And increasingly, um, these uh, Republicans, particularly in the in the Congress, but also uh, columnists, uh, you know, people writing in major newspapers, began warning that um, 
by insisting on unconditional surrender, whatever benefit might be gained by that policy would be lost by having the Russians in a dominating position in Northeast Asia. So that was uh, the second part of their their argument, and it, and it was crucial to their position. Um, Truman, um, you know, he listened to uh, these arguments. I liken this. I was actually hoping that by the time I wrote this, the word mansplaining would uh, become uh, part of the acceptable uh, vocabulary in, in uh, work such as this. But, but basically, Joseph Grew met several times with Truman and, you know, tried to lecture him on Japanese history. And, um, and Truman just didn't, um, in the end, he didn't accept Grew's interpretation of the emperor as a um, peacefully inclined uh, figurehead in the Japanese government. Um, uh, Truman, we now know, um, thought that Hirohito was as guilty as Hitler and Mussolini. Um, that, that was an exaggeration. That, um, that wasn't true either. But um, we know from biographies of the emperor that uh, Truman was closer um, to the mark. He had a better understanding of the significance of the emperor in Japan during this period. It's a fascinating story, Mark, and you tell it so well in the book. It's called Unconditional, The Japanese Surrender in World War II, published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author, Mark Galicchio. And Mark, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. During Walt Whitman's decade in Washington, D.C., 1863 to 1873, he laboured intensely, at times seeming to have three lives at once. He wrote the most distinguished journalism of his career, came into his own as a writer of letters, crafted memorable Civil War poetry, and produced his searching but also flawed critique of American culture, Democratic Vistas. And the story of this decade has now been told in a brilliant new book, Whitman in Washington, Becoming the National Poet in the Federal City. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press and costs about €25. The author is Kenneth M. Price. And Ken, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. It's a fascinating study and it's a fascinating decade. And we get a great insight into his career, his life, his work, and also what was going on in Washington, D.C. at this time. It's interesting because we normally associate him with with New York, where he was born, or perhaps with Camden, New Jersey, where he died. So tell us about how he ended up in Washington, D.C. at this time. Whitman had been in New York, as you mentioned, um, and at the beginning of the war, he was a little bit at odds, not quite sure what he should do. He was going from one journalistic job to another, and he was uh, spending a lot of time hanging out with a bohemian group at at Pfaff's Beer Cellar uh, in Broadway in New York City. Um, And then one day, um, he noticed in New York papers that his brother George Whitman was listed among the wounded at Fredericksburg, Virginia, one of the major Civil War battles. And on the spur of the moment, Whitman rushed to look for George to find out how badly wounded he was. He had no idea what condition he might be in. Uh, And when he got to the front, uh, he ended up 
having uh, this horrific experience of his first uh, sight of war was a, a huge heap of uh, amputated limbs, and he had no idea whether one of those limbs was that of his brother. When he finally, after a, a long period of time, uh, searched and, and located his brother, it turned out he had a superficial uh, cheek wound and didn't need further assistance. And Walt Whitman uh, found that other soldiers needed his assistance. And so he went from one to another, helping them and eventually uh, helped transport them back to Washington, D.C., where they had uh, better hospitals to care for the wounded. And he found this experience of assisting wounded soldiers so moving and gratifying that he ended up spending a, a decade in Washington when he merely meant to go for a day or two to, to look for his brother. In recent weeks and months, we've been transfixed with watching the events in Washington, D.C. Can you tell us what surprised you about what life was like in Washington, D.C. during this decade? You know, we, we think now of, of Washington as a ordinarily a, a polished uh, world capital city with, um, you know, uh, august monuments and and things like that. Uh, of course, more recently, there have been uh, attacks on the Capitol, and so that has uh, changed our perspective a bit. But um, if re- somewhat recent events have been chaotic in Washington, D.C., uh, Civil War Washington, D.C. was even more chaotic. Uh, for one thing, during the four years of Civil War, uh, the the capital city quadrupled in size, uh, and the racial and ethnic makeup radically changed with many fugitive slaves uh, rushing into Washington, D.C., the site of federal power, since uh, Washington was surrounded by um, slaveholding states, uh, Virginia and Maryland, uh, and so it was an, an easy and, and nearby place to, to come to. There were also a lot of um, immigrants coming into Washington, D.C. There were prostitutes. There were uh, people trying to swindle the government. There were people out to make a buck. Um, So it was a a wild place in that way. It was also massively underdeveloped by modern standards. There was only one paved street in Washington, D.C., Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, There was no good water system. There was no good sanitation system, and even behind the what's now called the White House, but was then called the Executive Mansion, uh, there was a canal that was disgustingly um, hazardous as an environmental, you know, waste site, as it were. Uh, that's where uh, killed cattle would would be tossed, and um, sewage would be dropped, and um, Abraham Lincoln's son was infected by by that canal and eventually died so it was it was not a a lovely or urbane place it was a it was a place of combustion and conflict and of course a place that was always under siege because it became uh the prize for the confederacy it was the target and uh robert e lee uh took as his policy to take the war to the North. Uh, He wanted to put the pressure on the North. If he could take Washington, D.C., he could potentially win the war with a single battle. Did you find it uh, 
a challenge or did you find it energising to be researching and writing this book during the Trump presidency and and Black Lives Matter? In some ways, the current political moment was the most, it was both the most energising and the most challenging part of writing the book. Um, the book has the issue of of race uh, as a recurrent theme. And in a way, the rise of Trumpism brought to mind, brought to clarity that that it was essential to not duck tough issues, to not paper over failings of Whitman and failings of the broader culture, to try to come to grips with what seemed to be a ongoing uh, eliminate racism in the bones somehow of the people and the culture. And, you know, Whitman himself then becomes a difficult case because in my own life, I've, I've spent decades studying Walt Whitman and I admire him greatly. And he has been for many people, a multicultural hero. He's, he was the poet who first reached out most broadly to encompass the greatest number of Americans, Americans of all classes, immigrants, Native Americans, the diseased, the poor, the dispossessed, um, African Americans and other particularly early in his career. And yet mid-career and later, he had failings as the nation had failings. Um, These failings come into greater clarity in the post-war period when Reconstruction um, began, and the United States had a opportunity for a second revolution and a way to remake itself as a more just society, uh, ideally a race-neutral society. Of course, we've never even approached that. Um, and with Whitman, it's particularly disappointing that he didn't do more to give voice to what a vibrant multiracial democracy might look like because he had written so powerfully early in his career about America being a teeming nation of nations and had written so powerfully about African-Americans, particularly in the first edition of, of Leaves of Grass. And he had opportunity to speak powerfully to the forces that were going to continue an ongoing subterranean, as it were, second civil war, the vigilantes, the Ku Klux Klan. And the reason I say he had an opportunity to speak to that is that one of his, well, his third job in in Washington, D.C. as a government worker was when he was employed in the office of the attorney general uh, starting in 1865. And then the attorney general's office became part of the newly formed Department of Justice in 1870. The Department of Justice came into being in part to protect African-American rights, uh, the rights of black voting rights, black suffrage, uh, but also to keep African-Americans from vigilante injustice in the South. Um, And when Whitman was working in the attorney general's office, He was a scribe. He was a secretary of the day. He was writing out in fine hand 
uh, messages from the attorney general and the assistant attorney general. And at least 30 of these letters uh, address issues of Klan violence in the South. And yet, remarkably enough, Whitman never speaks to this issue in his poetry, in his own published prose, in his extensive commentary and conversations with Horace Traubel late in life. And if anything, he seems to be, you know, kind of indifference to, uh, indifferent to the power and historical importance initially of emancipation and then of black voting rights and the emergence of a multiracial democracy. And so much as it pains me to say it, it seems to me a massive failing on Whitman's part, which is, you know, reflective of a broader cultural failing, because what happened in the post-war period is that there was an ongoing struggle after the Civil War, and ultimately the North became fatigued with the cause of black rights. And so in order to achieve regional reconciliation, they sacrificed racial reconciliation. So Whitman and the broader culture are both, as it were, equally to blame for that. Well, it's a very important new book. It's called Whitman in Washington, Becoming the National Poet in the Federal City. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press and costs around €25. The author is Kenneth M. Price. And thank you so much for joining us tonight. Great pleasure. Thank you for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. The publication in 1986 of Anna Parnell's The Tale of a Great Sham, scrupulously edited and annotated by Dana Hearn, was a landmark event in Irish women's history. For the first time, the general reader was able to read an account of the land war written by the woman who at the time had been hailed as the Irish Joan of Arc. Long out of print, it has now been republished with a compelling overview of the period by leading feminist historian Dr Margaret Ward and I'm delighted to welcome them both to the show tonight. The book is called The Tale of a Great Sham. It's now published in paperback by UCD Press and costs €22.95. Introduced by Margaret Ward, edited by Dana Hearn and as I say, they're both very welcome to the show. Dana, uh, congratulations on this and I wonder... How did you first hear about this and what impact did, did it have on you? Well, uh, between 1975 and 1979, I was doing my doctoral studies at York University in Toronto. And so in the course of that, I decided to do a project on the historiography surrounding Charles Stuart Parnell. And in the course of this project, I read an article by T.W. Moody called Anna Parnell and the Ladies' Land League in the history journal Hermathena. The article was based on the manuscript written by Anna Parnell called The Tale of a Great Sham. I was blown away by this. It was uh, the the first time, of course, to read the manuscript. And then I decided that as soon as I got to Ireland, the next time I came back to Ireland, I would go to the National Library and read it. And that's what I did. And what what really struck me was that you you get the sense of, of someone who was very much ahead of her time that this wasn't just an adjunct unit of of the land league that this was someone who 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 really could have been a 21st century figure with uh, with more modern preoccupations the funny thing is that when, when i was going to say something about that the the kind of what anna parnell had said about her memoirs she had written a furious letter in 1907 to dr sigerson telling him that 
quote, all the memoirs of the 1880s have libeled and ridiculed us in the most outrageous way. She includes, by the way, Michael Davitt in this. And then when you then look to 19, you know, late 1970s, and I found The Tale of a Great Sham by T.W. Moody, 1974, and he was given it by Helena Baloney in about 1964 to five. And uh, really, uh, he, 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 he and also Roy Foster do some of the same kind of um, undermining of The Tale of a Great Sham which actually is, reflects the kind of thing that uh, Anna Parnell felt about anything else in her period that was written about her. So I found that, I found that really, uh, for Anna, it was devastating. Uh, I found it, found it very difficult to look at. And then when I read the manuscript, this is a brilliant woman. Her understanding of her work in the Ladies' Land League and her executive of 25 women members and the, her understanding of the land and the this, the the landed gentry the landed uh, gentry situation and the, the the position of the peasantry and her totally not her political knowledge the whole thing is absolutely stellar and it's really a critique of the male leadership of the movement including her brother well i would i call it a, i call it a, a blistering critique so i so i, I you know she she's challenging the work uh, the challenging work she undertook as the, as a you know as the leader of the Ladies Land League, and then then all her um, I had a whole kind of thing here to say that uh, she thought that for example the Land Act of 1881 and the Kilmainham Treaty were what she she actually described them first of all she thought they were terribly weak and uh, they were kind of giving in to the British Parliament rather than taking Ireland into, into consideration as a first thought. And she referred to these um, moves in, in the British Parliament as the ridiculous mouse re re resulting from the upheaval of the whole island. The sum total of what the British government was prepared to offer, just far removed from what her hopes had been. And funnily, funnily enough, I should mention here that before Charles George Parnell went into Parliament, he too seemed to be far more radical, and then he became very moderate and was prepared to accept what she called the ridiculous mouse. Margaret, it's a fascinating story, and uh, what comes through very clearly is that Anna Parnell was someone who who was refusing to see her place as being in the home and that uh, she was going to very vehemently fight for a wider, a wider position and a wider role. I mean, Anna Parnell, when she started to organise, made it very clear what she had to do was to develop an organisation of women who had never been in any movement. Women didn't have the vote. They had no power. So you can hear her travelling relentlessly around the countryside, urging women to depend on themselves, do things for themselves, organize themselves, and just encouraging them and giving them that belief. But it's also very clear when you read her analysis in the tale that she saw the Lands League as the first part of a political movement that would win um, reform of the land question. In fact, she wanted more than that, I believe that she, she agreed with um, the American land reformer, Henry George, on some form of nationalisation of land. 
But what she wanted was a mass movement that would eventually win Irish independence. She didn't believe that parliamentarians talking to each other would achieve that. And she prophesied um, that that, that, would, that wouldn't work. You could see that she actually could see what would happen in terms of the Home Rule movement and that in the end Ireland would be forced into violence to rest independence. But she felt that if what she had wanted had happened, that wouldn't have been necessary. It would have been a mass movement that would have united um, Ireland across the classes for this movement for independence. And it all ended fairly tragically for her and she died in, in 1911 and, and drowned. But, you know, people kind of move from one to the other and there was a, a long period in between where she never lost interest in Ireland. Um, she was so delighted when Maud Gonne and other women formed Anini Nahera in 1900. She didn't have a lot of money, but she sent them a donation. She congratulated them by telegram on successful protests against royal visits. Um, and then we have a fantastic account of her speaking um, in 1911 to a joint meeting of the suffragettes in the Franchise League and nationalist women from Anini um, about the Land League. Helena Maloney learned she was in Bray, went to speak to her and ask her to come and speak to this joint meeting. So you could see nationalist women suffrage women. They knew about her. She spoke for over three hours, Helena Maloney said, with an intense quietness. Um, so she was still part of Ireland. And famously, of course, she also campaigned for Sinn Féin when they first um, stood in a by-election in 1908. And even though the ancient order of Hibernians uh, resorted a lot of violence in that campaign, when you read the newspaper reports, you can see how physically courageous she is, that she insists on going out and standing on boxes, even though they're taken away from under her. She has water thrown over her, and yet she insists on speaking in public. Oh, very interesting. And did she influence women in Ireland in the generations afterwards? Were people familiar with her work and her different positions? Very much so. I mean, not only that 1911 meeting, but before that, um, there's so many links. Father Eugene Sheehy, who was known as the Land League priest, um, shared platforms with Anna Parnell, but he was also the uncle and the godfather of Hannah Sheehy Skeffington, our best-known suffragette, and he always talked to Hannah about the noble women of the Ladies' Land League, as he described them. And so Hannah herself gave a lecture on women in the nationalist movement where she talked about what happened, the fine enthusiasm, she says, shown by the woman. And then she talked about the silence that was imposed on women by men after that time until the dawn of the 20th century. And a year before the rising, uh, Countess Markovich, in another lecture to women, also talks about the Ladies' Land League and how when the men came out of jail, they discarded the women. And she urged women to remember that lesson and to take up their responsibilities and to be independent and to fight. So I think the Ladies' Land League was a, a, a lesson and a warning to women 
what would, might happen in the future if they didn't have an independent organisation. Well, congratulations to both of you. The book is called The Tale of a Great Sham. A brilliant editing job by Dana Hearn and a wonderful introduction by Margaret Ward. It's published in paperback by UCD Press. It costs €22.95. And we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. During the first half of the 19th century, thousands of Irish men and women were transported as convicts to Australia. Few, however, possessed backstories as intriguing as that of the Belfast man, John Lynn. And his story has now been told in a new book, Crime and Punishment in 19th Century Belfast, The Story of John Lynn. It's published in paperback by Four Courts Press and costs €9.95. And I'm delighted to welcome the author, Jonathan Jeffrey Wright, to the show tonight. Jonathan, you're very welcome. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Can we begin with the, the original crime, uh, the murder of John Lynn's father? OK, yeah. I mean, in a sense, John Lynn's story is, 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 a, is a murder story, really. Um, uh, he, he murders his father, a man called William Lynn, um, in the Smithfield district of Belfast uh, in, uh, in August 1832. Um, and he, he murders him um, in a really quite brutal and frenzied attack. Uh, William Lynn was a wheelwright, and he was working in his workshop uh, in the afternoon of, or on the afternoon of the 29th of August. Um, and John Lynn bursts into the workshop, and there's a confrontation between father and son, um, during which uh, William Lynn is killed by John Lynn. He swings at him with a hatchet, stabs him in the chest with a chisel, uh, and the apprentice and journeyman who are sort of working in the workshop alongside William Lynn run away and bring the authorities. When the authorities arrive at the workshop, they can hear Lynn inside destroying everything within within the workshop, um, including a caged bird, it's said, uh, which he which he stamps on during this this very very frenzied attack. Um, but it it seems from from what we know of the backstory that actually the father and son William Lynn and John Lynn um, had had been kind of clashing for for a period of time um, beforehand. There'd been clearly some some dispute within the family. Um, which had kind of led up to this this catastrophic moment uh, in August 1832. So that's sort of the 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 the, the initial crime, if you like, um, in terms of the the, the crime and punishment uh, of the story. And he had a bad reputation even going into that. He was a brawler. He was uh, had a violent history. But tell tell us about what happened then, because even though he was guilty, he was judged to be insane and uh, uh, ended up in the Belfast Lunatic Asylum. But he seemed to be quite good at, at making his escapes. So, yeah, absolutely. Before he, he kills his father in 1832, John Lynn is a sort of a... Um, uh, I suppose the, the way to describe him is like a street celebrity, I, I suppose. Um, and he, he's known in the town as, as being um, a, a sort of a bare-knuckle boxer and, and a brawler. And he's described in, in later sources as having been the champion of the Orange Men. So as you get the population of Belfast expanding in the early 19th century, you've got large numbers of, of, of Protestants and Catholics uh, entering the city and, and, and settling in, in these kind of densely populated residential areas like Smithfield. And you get them bringing with them the kind of um, sectarian tensions from the countryside, faction fighting and so on. And that spills over into the, into the city. And um, John Lynn plays a role in this uh, because he, we know he was an orange man and he's described as having been the champion of the orange man. So the way I sort of think of him is like that kind of opening scene at the start of the film Gangs of New York where the, the various gangs are, are, are kind of um, confronting each other and they're each led out by their champion. But this is John Lynn, 
who was said to be sort of um, almost unnaturally strong, able to sort of knock out several men at once and, and hold his own. Where this all stems from is that Lin was born with a facial deformity. He was born with a, a double cleft palate. And it's said that as a child, he started fighting because of the, the way he was teased because of this. And that basically, he never stopped fighting. So by the time he kills his father in 1832, Lin is known to be a man who is um, uh, quite passionate, quite heated, very, very good with his fists. Um, he's known to be a violent character. And yet, when his case goes to court in March 1833, he gets off um, because the judge intervenes and basically directs the jury to find him not guilty on the grounds that sufficient evidence has been heard to suggest that Lynn um, is insane. As a consequence of which, Lynn ultimately finds uh, himself uh, in the Belfast Lunatic Asylum, a recently uh, established institution in Belfast. And there, of course, there are people who know what an insane person looks like or, 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 or know how uh, insanity presents itself. And they very quickly realize that, that John Lynn is not, in fact, insane at all. Um, and you have this kind of protracted sort of administrative wrangle then that takes place between the managers and directors of the Belfast Lunatic Asylum uh, and the Lord Lieutenant, uh, because it was the Lord Lieutenant's responsibility to decide what you actually do with somebody like Lynn, um, somebody who's clearly dangerous, who has killed somebody, but who is judged by the court to be insane. Uh, and Lord Lieutenant is very clearly of the opinion that this man should be in the lunatic asylum. Um, the directors of the lunatic asylum are of the opinion that he should not be anywhere near the lunatic asylum. And eventually, um, uh, in, uh, in um, 1835, John Lynn takes matters into his own hands by climbing over the wall of the lunatic asylum and making good his escape. And he, uh, he escapes, and he's at, at large then for the best part of two years until he's recaptured then uh, in 1837. And talk to me about then the insights we get, because we get great insights into Belfast at this time. We get great insights into crime and punishment in Ireland in the 19th century. That really, I think, the story of Lynn becomes a great way of exploring um, much wider questions and issues. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, the story itself is, well, I mean, if you, if you made it up, um, people would say it wasn't really credible. You know, the, the idea of this kind of brawler, he sort of gets off the murder charge, he escapes, and you know, he later leads a conspiracy uh, when he's recaptured and so on. People would say this, this, this story wasn't um, credible, but it, it's sort of fairly straightforward in terms of how it appears in the newspapers and in, 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 in the sources. There's no mystery. We know that it was Lynn who killed his father um, and so on. But what interested me with the story is that, yes, it, it, it offers these broader insights into, into um, particularly Belfast in, in, in the early 19th century. So I sort of approached it um, almost like a micro-history. So you tell the small story and let that kind of shed light on, on some of these bigger issues. I mean, for me, one of the most interesting aspects about it is that with Lynn, kind of remarkable as his story is, it gives you an insight into a community that, that, that is actually rather anonymous, which is working-class Belfast in the early 19th century. So we know that large numbers of people arrive in Belfast, the town's population explodes. but actually kind of tracing and detailing individual working class lives during this period, the early 19th century, is very, very difficult. And so with Lynn, we have an opportunity to do that. And you get all kinds of insights into um, in various aspects of, uh, of, of, of urban life at this time. And in many respects, really, it's a, a story of, of 
sort of frustrated social mobility and, 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 and family breakdown, really. Because we know that um, John Lynn's father, the murder victim, William Lynn, does very well for himself. Um, he, he sets himself up in business as a wheelwright. He acquires enough money to take on apprentices, to, uh, to employ journeymen, and indeed to set John Lynn up in business when John Lynn gets married. We know that John Lynn has two sisters, um, and they make marriages which suggest that if they're not sort of stepping confidently into the middle classes, they're sort of certainly climbing the ladder up from the working classes to the middle classes. And what you see then is this, this idea of this working class family that is, I suppose by the, the, the standards of the day, respectable, um, that's going somewhere. Um, and and that, that, that kind of social mobility, if you like, that social progress is shattered by, by John Lynn, by this, this criminal son. We know that John Lynn himself has three children, um, two of whom die ultimately in Belfast's poorhouse. So you've got these, 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 these two young girls who end up in the poorhouse, who die there, you know, who are the grandchildren of, um, of, of a respectable artisan worker. So you see then how fragile social mobility is within working class Belfast at this time. What is gained in, in one generation can, can be lost in the next generation. So it offers insights into, into society like that and, and insights into kind of attitudes around, around lunacy, around madness, around crimes like parasite and things like, like this. Because if you look at the, the newspaper reports of it, I mean, Belfast, um, murder would be rare enough in Belfast in the early 19th century, but violent crime isn't. If you think about kind of riots, faction fights, things like that, there are some scenes of, of, of quite appalling violence that take place in Belfast in the 1820s, early 1830s. But it's clear that there's kind of a real sense of, of, of horror um, that is aroused by this crime in particular. And it's not just because it's a murder. It's not just because it's a violent murder. It's because it's, it's, it's a parasite. It's a child murdering a parent. And this is viewed by society as, being, as, as, as something that is particularly hard to process, particularly hard to deal with. How could you know, a child do this to, to, to a parent? So it's a case that offers insights into kind of a whole range of... of, of, of um, of areas, um, uh, and I think that's that's kind of part of of, of what what drew me to, to to working on this story. Well, it's a wonderful short study. It's called "Crime and Punishment in Nineteenth-Century Belfast: The Story of John Lynn." It's published in paperback by Four Courts Press and costs nine euro ninety-five. The author is Jonathan Jeffrey Wright. And Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk right after this. Talking history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. In 1919, the revolutionary Irish government launched an audacious plan to crowdfund the equivalent of €30 million to fund a counter-state in open defiance to British rule in Ireland. And its story has now been told in a new book, Crowdfunding the Revolution, The First Thaw Alone and the Battle for Irish Independence. It's published in paperback by Eastwood Books and costs €20. And I'm delighted to welcome the author Patrick O'Sullivan-Green to the show tonight. Patrick, you're very welcome. Thank you, Patrick, for having me on. I think your own experience and background as a businessman and an entrepreneur has, I think, given you special insights uh, in, in this book when you went about researching and writing it. Yes, Patrick. Um, I was raised in a small family business and uh, went on to trade as a chartered accountant and worked as an equity analyst, which you know, probably brings me or gives me a different perspective of you know, what happened during the revolutionary period. 
So talk to me about the plan. What exactly did they want to do? How much did they want to raise and how did they plan on going about it? Because some was to be raised in Ireland and some in America. The initial plan was to raise £500,000, of which half would be raised in Ireland and half would be raised in America. And the focus of my book is on the funds raised in Ireland, which um, much of the history has been missed. And the, the practical way of how that loan was raised, how, the, how Dublin Castle responded to the loan, um, were critical factors in the revolutionary period, and particularly between September 1919 and March 1920. And what you show is that it wasn't just a, a, a one-man job, that you know, very often Michael Collins gets the credit for uh, so much that was happening during this time, but uh, really there was a, a very impressive team at work on this project. Yes, it's one of the factors that, you know, when I was doing my initial research uh, and was a trigger for me to actually proceed to doing the book, was a discovery of the professionalism of the time and the people involved. So if Michael Collins had a genius, it was very much in the fact that he surrounded himself with competence, you know, from the triumvirate of Collins, uh, Thornton and Tobin, who ran the intelligence department, to Dermot O'Hagerty, who ran the uh, Dáil Secretariat, and in the Department of Finance, which is very much lost to history, people like uh, Dahi O'Donoghue, who was uh, effectively his right-hand man in financial affairs, he was the person, after consulting with Collins, who arranged the, the bank accounts, moved the money, and made the payments to ensure the Dáil uh, government departments work. And in a way, you get a good insight into Michael Collins here as well, because you get a sense of his motivations. And it's not really the, the idealised romantic vision that sometimes is portrayed of him. Uh, yes, Patrick, that's a, a key element of the book. And uh, one of the main reasons I wrote the book, the work that was done was of a very practical nature. And sometimes that is, gets lost in the narrative of military intelligence and sacrifice. And it applies not only to Michael Collins, you know, we've seen in the recent commemoration of uh, Terence McSweeney, where Michael Collins described Terence McSweeney as being the greatest factor in making the loan a success. And for the reason that Terence McSweeney was an excellent organizer, he organized the Mid-Cork constituency in, in, in such detail that he prepared that in the event of his arrest, the funding of the Dáil loan would continue. And Michael Collins was extremely professional himself, surrounded himself uh, with, with people of similar um, desire and training. And if we look at um, when the Ormond Winter set up his raid bureau in uh, late 1920, he described that the Irish had an irresistible habit of keeping documents, which is something we wouldn't necessarily um, <laughs> view ourselves as being and in effect it was a backhanded compliment to Michael Collins and the team that was around him of their professionalism. And what exactly did they do with the money because they seem to have laundered it into different accounts they seem to have converted some into gold that they were very clever at, at, at covering their tracks. There was two elements to the raising the, the funds Patrick. Um, the first element was collecting the funds and then once the funds were collected, it had to be couriered to Dublin. And remember, this was done, the actual Dole Aaron had been prohibited at this stage. And once the funds reached head office in Dublin, um, a receipt was issued to every subscriber and couriered 
down the, to the, the, the four corners of the country. The money itself um, was laundered into the commercial banking system in Dublin using a mixture of um, using people's uh, names that they could trust, um, using fictitious names, and actually physically giving uh, the funds to people who opened uh, the bank accounts effectively in trust for Dáil Éireann. Now, those people were holding very large sums of money uh, in their names in the banks. Uh, were also liable to pay back the interest on deposits whilst it was in their hands. Talk to me about the Dublin Castle attempts then to to stop all of this happening because they went to great lengths to try and put an end to it. Yes, they. You know, I think there's strong evidence that the the, the raising or the launching of the Dáil loan in early September was a key catalyst for the prohibition uh, prohibition of Dáil Éireann um, on 12 September. And from 12 September, there's a what you could call a 10-week circle of suppression on the civilian arms of the counter-state, including the raising of the loan. And um, that continued right up until 25 November, when uh, Sinn Féin was prohibited uh, across Ireland. Now, the tools developed at Dublin Castle were mainly legislative tools in the, in the form of the Crimes Act 1887, um, which made... Um, unlawful assembly and subscribing money to anything connected to Dáil Éireann illegal. And, you know, we have a number of TDs arrested for standing up at speaking at loan promotion meetings. Newspapers were suppressed. Motor permits were introduced to stop funds being carried from the country to Dublin. Uh, railways were searched. Um, Michael Collins described it as the main enemy objective during this period. And he described in a letter to Eamon de Valera in February 1920 that the enemy government went after the funds with savagery and determination. Okay, well, you tell the story very well in the book. It's called Crowdfunding the Revolution, the First Thaw Loan and the Battle for Irish Independence. It's published in paperback by Eastwood Books and costs €20 and the author Patrick O'Sullivan-Green. Patrick, thanks a million for joining us tonight. Thank you, Patrick. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cattle, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week is Easter Sunday, so we'll be seeking political and legal enlightenment by looking back on our show on Montesquieu. And in two weeks' time, we'll be finding out about the Native American leader, Sitting Bull. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night. Talking History on News Talk. Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade? They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if a block sink is not helping with Wednesday's hump day, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. TNCs apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details.